I'd like to welcome you to the ministry of McCormick's Creek Church. We certainly hope that you will enjoy this selection. To have uh, Lois, we're going to talk about Naboth. I said this is Memorial Day weekend. People are out camping, enjoying this wonderful, glorious, rainy day. Just tickles me. Can't help it. There's that meanness in me coming out. You know. I told, I asked Brother Fox. I said, Brother Fox, I said, why aren't you out camping with everybody else? He said, I got enough camping while I was in the military. He said, I don't need He said, that's what a bed's for. <laughs> I said, people don't really camp anymore. Anyway, they get in those great big motor homes, and, you know, that's not camping. Camping's when you go out and dig a hole in the ground, and, you know, you lay down in it, and, you know, and sleep. That's what camping's all about. That's the reason I don't do it. <laughs> I, used to, I used to do a lot of camping, and my wife hated it with a passion. She hated it. And uh, because... Because I could never come to the conclusion that camping was only when you did a tent. I never could understand, you know, it wasn't camping if you did anything else. She thought camping was going and renting a, a cabin somewhere, you know. And, well, you know, that's not camping. That's not camping at all. And we finally come to agreement after so many years that she doesn't camp with me any longer. Of course, I don't camp with me any longer either. <laughs> No price is right, First Kings 21, 1 through 8. No price is right. Oh, I have a couple announcements before we're getting there. Um, Sister uh, uh, Tuttle, Jessica Tuttle, uh, she, they need some help in the, with PowerPoint. I don't know. We've lost our help. If any of you are interested in learning and helping in PowerPoint, just think. Let me make a great advertisement. You can be up there in PowerPoint, and you can have me yell at you when things don't come up. It's a great job. It's a wonderful job. And, and, and Brother Graves, he's talking. I can't hear him. You think I can hear that far? <laughs> oh, yeah, Soundman's another one. So, you know, it's the same thing. You know, it's a great place to be if you want to be right in the middle of everything. You want to understand what's going on, what's happening. Actually, it's not that bad, but I just, uh, I appreciate the help that comes from up there, and I mean that. I mean that. They, both Soundman and a, and a PowerPoint, they do so much. So if you could be a help, please see. Uh, Jessica Tuttle. Some of you, some of the younger ones, maybe some of you older ones that are a little bit more inclined to understanding technology, I think that's a big part of it. So, so please see her on this. First Kings 21, 1 through 8, 13 and 14. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near my house. It's like that. I want, to be, I want convenience here. I'm the king. Give me what's convenient. It belongs to you, but give me what's convenient. People, don't they? They, they tell Jesus the same thing. He's king, isn't he? Huh? I mean, you know, or, 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 or just, 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 just turn it around. Let me, let me turn that around for a second. We tell Jesus that kind of things. I want what's convenient for me. I want what's convenient. In this case, you know, you got the king thinking and using his power and authority, give me what's convenient. I don't want to have to walk more than 200 steps. I want to be sure I can sit on a padded pew. You know, sorry, let's just, my goodness, let's move on. Yeah, I want to go camping in a motorhome. We could just keep going, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, because it is near my house, and I will give it. I will give thee. Now he's offering a good deal. I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it. Or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. 
And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. And Ahab came unto his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and he turned away his face and he would eat no bread. But Jezebel his wife came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad and thou eatest no bread? And he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else, if I please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, And I will not give thee my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said unto him, Dost thou not govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters to Ahab's name and in Ahab's name, and she sealed them with his seal and sent the letters into the elders and to the nobles that were in the city dwelling with Naboth. Verse 13, And there came in two men, children of Belial, it's children of the devil, and set before him and the men of Belial witness against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. Then they carried him forth out of the city, stoned him with stones that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. In Matthew 16, verse 26, it says this, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Turn and shake somebody's hand. Tell them you're glad that they made it out on Memorial Day weekend. And then you may be seated. I should have said, I'm, she had just turned and said, I'm glad I'm not camping today in this nasty weather. <laughs> Naboth had a vineyard, an inheritance that was passed to him from his ancestors. But more than property, more than property of natural value, Naboth, uh, Naboth saw this, and it was. It was his heritage. It wasn't just a piece of property that he raised grapes on. This was his heritage, something of enduring significance, something of enduring value. And for that reason, he refused to sell the property to Ahab and to Jezebel. Now, leaving an inheritance, you know, when I've been doing some things on Wednesdays, I did for two Wednesdays in a row about teenagers. And this is some, some areas here that uh, I, I did some research on. But leaving an inheritance to our children... And, and, and successors, it's noteworthy. And, and I believe that it's possible that it should be done. It's commendable, and it should be done. But how much more important is it that, that we leave a spiritual heritage for our children? And regardless of how weary that you may get in well-doing, how many distractions that is thrown your way, don't ever give up the fact that you are trying to leave an inheritance or a heritage, rather, to your children. Because I, I, I will say this, and this guy wrote this. I thought it was so good, Randy Alcorn. And he wrote this, Parenting Teens. And he said this. He said, uh, he said, leaving a lasting spiritual heritage, he wrote, it only takes money to leave an inheritance. It takes character and spiritual vitality. And this last one, a long obedience in the same direction to leave a spiritual heritage. A long obedience in the same direction. 
Let me, let me just ask that question. What am I saying when I say a long obedience in the same direction? What am I saying? Raise your hands. What are we teaching our children by having a long obedience in the, re- in the same direction? Go. That's exactly right. What else? Anybody else got anything? Go ahead. Accessibility? Civility. Stable. Now, from now on, I'm going to get one of those big horns to put in my ear. Stability. That's good. Stability regardless of what occurs. If I'm going to live for God and i got distractions thrown our way, we're still going to cross over the, road, the Jordan. We're not going to stop. We're not going to whine. We're not going to turn our head towards the, the wall and say, I'm not going to get what I, I wanted. What's the sense of serving God? You hear what I'm saying? The, the most important thing that you do when it comes to, to raising children with a spiritual heritage is the ability when things are going bad for you to keep the faith and to keep believing and keep speaking the right things. Do not get into a spirit of whininess. Do not get into a spirit of it's not going to happen for me. You keep believing regardless. I fall and break my arm. I hurt my back. Regardless, I still love God and God's going to take care of me. That is a spiritual heritage. That is long obedience in the same direction. And that's so, so, you know, what are my kids going to remember? Are they going to remember me of being a a fair-weather Christian? Everything's good and I can serve God and love God and praise God when everything's going good. But when can I praise God? Can I run the aisles? Can I dance when everything at home is going bad? When I don't have the money that I need? When I, I see everything falling apart my children are leaving me? My, my husband my wife is leaving me? Can I still worship God? Can I still worship Him? You know, this, this is what so many of us see, so many children see rather. Dad was too busy to help me. Too busy to talk with mom. Too busy to volunteer for even the most basic ministry at church. So busy reading the newspaper that there was no time for the Bible. So busy buying new cars there was no money to give to the church or to missions. If that's true, then, my friend, no amount of money that you leave can cover up the fact that you have left your family nothing of eternal value. (coughs) I'm getting a little bit honorary right now. I might as well say what I feel, hadn't I? There is nothing that's more irritating, and I've said this before, but we're about to get into it again. There's nothing more irritating than to be out there working, trying to build a building or cut down a tree or to work on millings and have somebody pull in in their car and watch from the car while you're out there breaking your back. So if you decide to do that, please do it quietly and don't let me see you. Because you work and you work and you work and you got somebody, oh, you're doing a great job. Listen to me. Let, listen to me. Let me get this across. I should not have to come to your car and say, hey, you want to help? Just come and take the shovel out of somebody's hand. You know, that's, that's uh, <laughs> you know, I, I can say this about my, my parents, my grandparents. They didn't leave a whole lot of money, but they left me a great heritage. You understand, they left me a great heritage, and that's what's important. 
You know, when it comes right down to it, I, I, I'm liable to get off on a tangent here. I've just been reading a, a book about how great America is, written by an African American. He was, uh, uh, Raw, I think it's Rawlings, but he was a neurosurgeon, and he um, he was talking. He's got various things, talking about uh, morality, talking about uh, uh, you know socialism versus capitalism, and so forth. Each chapter is a little bit different, and I'm not finished it yet. But he just he was raised. He was raised in Detroit, and he was raised just by his mother, him and his brother. She worked three jobs, and in the fall, late summer, she would load up her boys, and they would go out into the country where they were raising either orchards or, uh, you know, raising beans, whatever, vegetables they could. And she would stop at these farmers' places, and she said, I will pick three bushels if you'll give me one, and I'll give you two. That's how she got the food to can for the wintertime. And she never took, she had, he said, all around me, he said they were taking uh, uh, subsistence, you know, welfare. All around us, but she would never take a dime of welfare. One of her sons is a civil engineer, the other one's a neurosurgeon, and they were raised in poverty. Now you tell me that's not the right thing to do. You tell me. And that's what he's saying. It's just so... It's tremendous, tremendous book. Uh, it really is. And, uh, and, he, and he just, you know, he hits everything. I just read one chapter where we talked about socialism versus uh, capitalism. And he gives the pros and cons of both of them. And then you weigh it out, and he'll tell you what he thinks at the end. And he says how you could, you could and it's just really, you know, nobody's trying to, to, to make you think one way or the other. He just he uses logic on you. And logic is what works in the cases of government at least. All right. Some individuals in the Bible stood head and shoulders above their peers. Now, while others caved in, and we see that in Scripture. You know, you got something, a little bit of pressure comes by, and they compromise and they cave in under that worldly pressure. The upright were the heroes who, who stood firm, and they did not waver. They did not surrender their principles for the hope of favor or for the sake of security, regardless of the outcome. Caleb and Joshua stood against the naysayings of ten other spies and an entire nation of unbelieving Israelites. David, again, challenged the giant in spite of the Philistines' size and armor and weapons. Gideon faced down the Midianites and, and their allies in spite of the tremendous odds that were against him. Three Hebrew youths refused to bow in spite of the king's fiery furnace. Daniel prayed in spite of the den of lions. Do you understand what I'm saying? In spite of what was coming against them, they did not let down their principles. They did not give in their integrity and their love for God. They did not do it in spite of what was coming against them. You know, a time comes in our lives when we have to either take a stand for what is right or take the plunge into the polluted flow of what is wrong. And Jesus stated this. He said, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad, in Matthew twelve thirty, There is no middle ground in a Christian conflict, no place to negotiate when it comes to right and wrong. We do not negotiate right and wrong. We make a decision sometime in our life, and I realize this, there's some younger ones in here, and regardless of how long you've served God, regardless if you were raised in the church or not, there comes a time when the Lord calls you. He speaks to you and says, all right, you're going to have to make a decision. You've been living on the edge for a long time. You're either going to have to get into this or you're going to go the other way. Everybody deals with it. When I was younger, I dealt with it. I had to make a decision. Am I going to live for God or am I not going to live for God? Because when I lived for God, I was going to live for God all the way. To me, living God for God halfway is going to send me to hell. I don't want 
to go there. Maybe you, maybe you prefer taking the chance and not making it, but I'm not going to take that chance. I would rather make it into heaven all the way than to miss it by a half an inch. God, help us to live and to stand for what is right and not give in, not cave in to the world. Praise God. You know, there's a, maybe it's well that there's a little information given in the Scriptures about Naboth, the Jezreelite. His name is mentioned only a few times. He was just a common farmer. He was unpolished. He was unpretentious. But with a backbone of steel. Oh, and I love that. In a spiritual battle, it is often the undistinguished and the lowly who become the point men in God's attack upon the forces of evil. I, I, I'm going to throw something else out there. I'm just being as pastoral as I can possibly be here this morning. And I, I hate, I despise it when I see good men fall. I despise it. But I see sometimes, and it happens so much anymore, that we take men who have built good churches, and we put them out there on the circuit, and they go around and they talk about what they did to build the churches. They go about, and, and you know, that's, I, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But I'm saying sometimes it puts so much pressure. You better be sure of that person that you're dealing with before you, you laud him too much. Because so many of those men wind up falling away. So many of those men fall into sin. Just recently, one that I, it just, it, I don't know why I, this threw me, you know, I've been around it a while, I've seen it happen. One just recently happened and, and you know, fell into sin with a woman in the church. And, you know, it was a nice church. He was out there doing great things. And, wow, boom, just gone. You know, just gone. Because, and God help us, we all are subject to temptation. We're all subject to sin. But sometimes we forget. And, and, and people, they, they put pressure on men that have had some, some success. They put pressure on them. And that's what the devil does. If I can make him fall then I'm going to discourage a lot of other people who thought he was so great. You know, you need to serve God and stand on your own, not because of me, but because of Jesus Christ. If something would happen to me, you still should have enough God in your heart to be able to say, I'm going to serve God anyway. I'm not going to let down. I'm not going to give in. I'm going to serve God. Naboth. He's only mentioned a couple times in Scripture. Actually, it's uh, 1 Kings 21, 2 Kings 9, and uh, verses 21, 25, and 26. He was a common farmer, unpolished, unpretentious, but with a backbone of steel. I said that earlier, a backbone of steel. But in the spiritual battle is often undistinguished and lowly men who really stand up. That's the kind. God help us to keep people who... I, I, this, uh, just as, a, as an order of what I've seen, this is just what I've seen. It, it, a lot of times it is the men who everybody accuses of being too tough and too, too hard that stand up in the middle of some of the worst disasters. It's people who said, this is my heritage. This is how I was raised and I'm not going to give in just because the world says that I should do this. In fact, even if the preacher says I don't have to do it, I'm going to do it anyway. You, and I'm saying talking about the good things, not the bad. Well, you may not necessarily have to dress all that well. Well, I'm just going to do it because I want to, and I'm not going to point my finger at you, but because I just want to be sure that everything is right with me. I want to get so far this right direction. Because I know how the devil can lure you over, but if I'm really way over here, 
then if he lures me a little bit, I'm not going to fall off the edge, and I don't want to fall off the edge. It's having someone who's going to say, I'm not. I'll do whatever's necessary to teach my children. I'll do whatever's necessary that I can make it to heaven because that's what I want. Grapes at Naboth's vineyard were probably some of the finest around. It was in the the rich soil of the fertile plain. This was the tribal territory that was allotted to Issachar. And it contained some of the most fruitful land in all of Israel. Jezreel was a town in this area, and it was situated northwest of Mount Gilboa. And it was strategically positioned to overlook the plain which extended to the Jordan River. Israel's kings were attracted by this beautiful vistas, and often they established residence in Jezreel because it was such a beautiful place. But possession of the land meant more than simply the harvesting of of crops or the viewing of stunning scenery. The land was a gift from God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. Moreover, the Jews were granted this land forever, according to Genesis 13, 14, and 15. God had instructed Moses to tell the Israelites, he said, I am the Lord your God which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. In Leviticus 25. Mosaic law regulated permanent ownership of the land according to the person's family. Even if they had to sell a piece of land in time of financial crisis, the buyer was required to return it to the original owner during the year of Jubilee. And this is our year of Jubilee starting in June. This, is, this, this church is 50 years old. And I, that's the reason. You just heard. This is the reason I believe there's going to be a lot of backsliders come back. Because there's got to be a restoration. And I, I pray that way. God, give us, restore us. You know, that which was, you know, I, I, my prayer used to be, God, restore us. And I still do it that way. That which was taken from us. And help me to accept that which you, how do I put it, which you, which you have taken or which, is, which can't be restored. Help me accept that. Because I know God knows what's best. But I'm telling you, folks, there is a lot of people that God is going to restore during this year of Jubilee. I believe this is why our distractions are coming up. RBD, you know, our home churches, what we're trying to do there, that's one of the reasons. But I think some of these home churches are going to be instrumental in getting back some of the backsliders. If we got back every backslider out of this church, we could not contain them in this building. That's just the backsliders. We could not contain them. I believe that God is going to restore it during this year. Fifty years this church has been here. Fifty years we've had an impact on this community. And we've had a good impact on the community. And God help us to understand here that God is going to do something great. This is not just somebody standing up here preaching something just for the sake of preaching. I don't do that. I preach something that I know in the Holy Ghost, that I feel in the Holy Ghost. And whether it comes in the time I'd like for it to come or not, it will come. And I'm believing with all of my heart and all of my soul that we're going to have a great year of restoration this coming year. God, our year of Jubilee. (laughs) Mosaic law was clear. No land is to be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, and you are only guest of mine passing wayfarers. That's Leviticus 25. That was a Moffat translation. (coughs) The land was a chosen land, a promised land. And it would remain uniquely God's. He alone could dispose of it regardless of what kings or nations might decide. It would be the place where the Lord would reveal himself to his people. 
Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the tribal chiefs distributed the inheritance west of the Jordan and as the Lord had commanded. God told Moses that Canaan was a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even to the end of the year. In Deuteronomy 11 and 12. The land was and continues to be under the Lord's constant supervision. Many Jews sensed a special bond with, with God through their homeland. A, a woman by the name of Sarah Yoheved Rigler, she's a writer, uh, having visited half the world, holy sites, she wrote this. She said, only in Israel do I feel the palpable presence of God when I'm looking for a parking place. said, you can feel God there just looking for a parking place. And again, she wrote, Israel is not just another piece of real estate. And it's not. A farmer who tills and plants the land uh, with his own hands has a natural love for the land. That's just the way we are. But a farmer in Israel in the 9th century B.C. viewed his land not just as a piece of real estate, but as a gift from God. And Joshua had fought for the land, and Jehovah had driven out greater and mightier nations than Israel in Deuteronomy 4. The Almighty did this because he loved their fathers and chose their descendants after them. For the 500 years since the time of Joshua, generation after generation of Israelites had treasured their inheritance. They held it in secret, sacred trust, for they considered the land Ahuza, a God-given possession that came to them with terms of the covenant relationship. It was something special in Ahuza, which is simply meant it was a God-given treasure. God loaned it to them. That's why nothing bad Nothing bad or permanent is going to happen. I mean, there may be some bad things. Let me rephrase that. Nothing permanent is going to happen in Israel. Yes, there can be wars. Yes, there will be battles. But that is God's place, and He will not allow another nation to stay there. It will never happen. And the next big one that occurs over there, I am convinced in my heart, and you should be also, that we are going to be out of it. We're going to be gone or very close to the time that the big one begins to happen. That war really starts over there. There's going to be a rapture, and I think when the rapture takes place, when I am caught out of here, when you're caught out of here, then things will open up. <coughs> and there will be battles in Israel. Excuse me a minute. I'm allergic to all these flowers up here. <coughs> My goodness. Katie must have sprayed those with real flower scent or something. <laughs> Could be all the dust. <laughs> Could be my throat's wore out. That's probably more like it. <laughs> All right. To this day, the land of Israel grips and holds the people's hearts. And it, it does, I think it does for all of us. Uh, if, if you have any basis whatsoever of Christianity, you're, you're always, you're drawn. You're drawn to what's happening in Israel. It's, it's, and it goes beyond just maybe what you've heard or what you've read in the past. It's, it's just something about it. You know that that, that is God's land. And that God's people, the natural people, that he will, when the church is taken out of here, he will turn back to Israel. He will turn back to them. When we are taken out of here, and the church uh, is so, we're so close to having that happen right now. When we're taken out of here, 
then he's going to turn back to the natural people. And there are going to be all kinds of battles. You know, Israel's going to be surrounded. It's going to be a, uh, it's going to be quite a, a thing that happens. And, and we're, you know, you've heard, if you've been in a church, you've heard this preached all your life. But, folks, let me tell you, we are just that much closer to it happening than we've ever been. When I first got in church, I, I remember, I, I remember, you know, I thought the Lord was going to come at any time. I, I thought he was going to split the eastern skies. I wanted him to split the eastern skies. You know, I wanted to, but, you know, through the, through the years and through the times that we've spent, all of us, that we've seen uh, what we thought maybe was a fulfillment of Scripture. We have seen truly Scripture being fulfilled in different ways. What we used to think would fulfill a particular passage didn't really fulfill that passage. But now... As we get closer and closer, it's more than just a matter of looking out and saying that fulfills that scripture. It's a matter of saying there's something in the air. There is something that stirs up. If you're filled with the Holy Ghost, there's something inside of you, which is the nature of God, that knows that this thing's about to happen. There's a quickening inside your heart that's just about to take you out of here, and you know it's going to happen. So we, we see this, and, and, and it holds that hold on us. And Charles uh, Krauthammer wrote, It is the only nation on the earth, think about this, that inhabits the same land, bears the same name, speaks the same language, and worships the same God that it did 3,000 years ago. The same place. All is the same. <laughs> Many individuals view life simply from a, a natural perspective, seeing only what gratifies the flesh. They are like Achan, or who hid the spoils of Jericho in his tent. They are like self-willed Balaam or rebellious Korah. They live for the present, and by their disobedience they ruin the future. Naboth, his perspective came from a higher vantage point. He didn't see things the way everybody else did. He saw the promises and the provision of God for himself and for his family. Ahab could build all the palaces that he wanted, even on land that bordered Naboth's. But the farmer found comfort in knowing this lush vineyard was and always would be his by inheritance. Vineyards were frequently built on the slopes of the hillsides. And perhaps Naboth thanked God for uh, the work his fathers had invested in the land, building terraces and, and stone walls to prevent erosion. It's an interesting thing if you've never seen that. <coughs> if you've never seen that, I did in the Philippines in the mountains. I had heard about it. Um, and in fact, they did that in Palau and in in some of the back islands. That they would go on the side of a mountain and begin to build walls and they would terrace. And they would plant those small little areas that they terraced out with rice uh, in this case, uh, in, in their case, with, with vineyards. And the amount of work that would take to build a wall, and then they'd have to fill that area with dirt to build. So, so this thing was passed down. Works that his forefathers had done on this, he was, he was continuing that work. And I'm sure in the Philippines that was the same way. They continued. When you put that much into something, when you have given that much of yourself and your family has given that much... How in the world can you let something like that go? And we're not talking about the ability to have uh, some kind of uh, backhoe or something lift stones into place or move the dirt or an excavator. They didn't have anything like that. They did this all by hand. And it's amazing when you see the amount of work that can go into it. And you, and you begin to wonder, uh, and I, it's so easy for me to put this in a spiritual perspective because I look... Back at my life, I look back at, at, at my family, and I realize how much 
I had a grandfather that, that, that was, a, you know, he had been a preacher and he lived for God and set an example at the time when he died. I was still fairly young, but I still remember. I remember, I can remember him getting down and praying. When I'd stay all night over there, he would, at, for, he went to bed at night. He was always, you could look in and you could see him on his knees right beside his bed. And he would pray there for quite a while, every night. Never, never, that had an impact. No, I wasn't really serving God at that age. But I never forgot it. And, you know, he was building. He was building something that was going to be fruitful later on. How do you give that away? How do you sell out something like that? How can anybody think that it's no longer necessary? When people have given their lives in, in, the, in, this, in this sake, for the sake of, of seeing their family, uh, you know, do greater and to have this. You know, I don't want, and I don't see any of us that want to see our children die and be lost. We don't want to see that happen. But neither do we have the promise of tomorrow. So what we have to do is at the very beginning, we begin to do good things and we begin to show them how that we live for God and we, and we do it consistently. You know, it's not just enough to sit down and have a Bible quiz with a kid. Oh, that's a great thing, but you better be living what you're quizzing. So it came from a higher vantage point. And he, he had, you know, I'm sure he thanked God for the work that was done on this, on this vineyard before his time ever came. Naboth felt close to the earth and the grapevines that he cultivated. He felt close to the God who had given it to him. And for he, he knew that only the Lord could provide the necessary rain and sunshine at the right times and seasons. Now while Naboth nurtured his vines and he pruned away the fruitless branches. He may have thought of, uh, of God's care for the nation of Israel. And surely uh, the Lord had provided a place for Israel. His vineyard in a very fruitful hill according to Isaiah 5 and 1. The psalmist Asaph wrote, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt and thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it. And did has caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land, according to Psalm 80 and 9. Isn't that great? The roots that we could set down now, it could possibly fill the whole land if we would do it correctly. If this church could set the right roots down, and we're old enough to have done that, that we will re reap a reward for what is done before I ever came here and what I've done since we've been here. We can reap a reward as a result of that. It was a matter of convenience as far as Ahab was concerned. You got Naboth who, who thanked God that his, his parents, his grandparents, whatever, going on down the line, uh, had done in, in working in that vineyard. Now, now you've, you've seen a man who thanked God, and he thanked God because he sent the rain in its season and time. And now you see, you see Ahab, and all he was concerned about was, was convenience. That terrace vineyard next to the palace would be ideal for a, a big herb garden. And Ahab thought Naboth would not really refuse to sell his land to the king. Inheritance or not, I'm the king, and this is what he thought. So he decided to speak to Naboth personally, which would, immediate, uh, which would intimidate rather the, the farmer and assure a real quick transaction. And that's what he wanted. I want to get this done. I want this. This is going to be my herb garden. This is what it is. Real convenient for me. Ahab offered Naboth what he considered a fair deal. I will give thee for it a better vineyard. 
Now think about this. So he offered a good deal, and I will give thee for it a better vineyard, or if it seemed good to thee, I will give you the worth of it in money. So from a natural point of view, the offer may have looked like an opportunity, a chance to strike a bargain with the king that would lead to a greater prosperity. But from a spiritual viewpoint, it was all wrong. Sometimes, folks, what looks good to us in the natural is not good for us. And this is what he's doing here. In a natural point of view, Naboth would have been better off to have taken another vineyard. Naboth would have been better, better off to have taken it in money. Maybe that's what would have helped him. He would have probably given him more than the place was worth. But he was not looking at it in a natural sense. He was looking at this in a sense of heritage. Probably Ahab had never seriously considered the law of inheritance. The God-given law that protected common Israelites from the unscrupulous practices of others. And moreover, if he never would return it to its rightful owner during the year of Jubilee, he wouldn't have returned that in the 50 years. He wouldn't have done that if the year of Jubilee may have been coming up two years from then. Five years. But regardless of when it occurred, it wasn't going to be, it was not going to, he wasn't going to return it. So once Ahab took possession of the land, the vine dresser's family would lose their inheritance forever. It was gone if he took it. Naboth knew the reputation of this seventh king of the northern kingdom of Israel who dragged his reputation behind him like a chain. Ahab walked in unsurpassed rebellion against the laws of God. He was rebellious. He, his wife was Jezebel, an idolatrous Phoenician princess whom one commentator actually called her a she-devil, which that's exactly what she was. You imagine somebody naming her kid Jezebel. I've always thought about that. Every time I get to this, I think about that. Can you imagine? And you know, I bet you that there are people that have done that. And names do influence you. They really do. I believe that. You know, oh, are you in a witchcraft or something? No, I believe they influence you. You look at some people's names. Ask them what they mean. Look them up for yourself. See if there's not something to what I'm saying. So she, he had a, and, the, and the king, the king goaded by his domineering wife, Never is such a thing as a Jezebel unless you have an Ahab. Never remember that. Jezebel cannot exist outside of existing around Ahab. So if your wife is a Jezebel, that means that you are an Ahab. that good preaching? That's good. Sarah over here is about to freeze to death. Every time I look back and I got sweat dripping off him and I see somebody wrapped up in a coat, it just. <laughs> so you can't, and, and this is exact. You know, you look at you look at this, you look at this in a natural sense. There's a lot of of women out there who would want to help their husband get what he wanted. So in that sense. You can't blame Jezebel. Jezebel was what Jezebel was. She was a devil. All right? You can't really blame a devil for being a devil. That's just the way a devil is. Ahab is the one that bothers me. That's the one that truly bothers me. Because that devil could never have done anything unless Ahab wasn't a whimpering simp. 
He was just, you know, he wanted what he wanted, and so he just, you know, she, yeah, maybe she goaded him. But the simple fact is, this is a man who's in charge of the kingdom. He was in charge of the kingdom, and he was so immature that he acted this way. So I'm always careful when I have a husband say, well, my wife's a Jezebel. I've heard it before. And I look at him, and I say, well, I understand why. You get rid of that spirit of Jezebel by casting it out. But you see, that thing can always come back as long as Ahab exists. That's good preaching. Thank you. All right, let's move on. So, you know, he was, he was again, he was, he was, uh, she was into uh, Baal worship and involved cruel and licentious rites. And not only had they built a sanctuary for the 450 priests of Baal and Samaria and another for the 400 priests in Jezreel, but Jezebel had also slain all the prophets of the Lord that she could find. Ahab's and Jezebel's hands were smeared with innocent blood. They, they ruled as tyrants, acting as a law unto themselves. And who in Israel could dare to oppose this kind of people? Who could this happen? And knowing all this, Naboth had no illusions about what would happen if he displeased the king. Naboth knew about Jezebel. He knew about Ahab. Now, what's going to happen if you displease him? There's no illusions here. Naboth knew exactly what he was doing when he did it. This is my heritage. I'm not giving it to you. I'm not selling it to you. I'm not trading it off. Do you understand? I don't care how many Ahabs and how many Jezebels there could be that try to get a hold of a church. This is our heritage. And you and I should never allow anything to take that from us. Give him a hand clap. Praise God. Ahab had never dealt with a man of Naboth's caliber. This is not what happens. Naboth flatly refused to sell his inheritance. He could not negotiate. He said, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. And with a statement, he acknowledged the very, the, the very God the king had rejected was declaring openly he would, he would obey. So, Ahab, you're not, you don't believe in Jehovah. You don't, obviously don't follow Jehovah, but I am. That's just that simple. You can do with me what you want. This is what was not said that was said. Do you understand? He said, no matter what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve the one true God. He said, you can go ahead and serve Baal. He said, you can go ahead and serve all the, the, the priests and prophets and all that goes on with that religion. But he said, I am serving the one true God and I'm not giving up what He gave me. <coughs> you know, the world... The world does not know what to do with somebody who stands for right. They really don't. People are not used to that. People are not used to someone who will stand up. You know, you can see uh, through through the political arena and all, all the stuff that goes on there, and you know, you you get people who stand up for moral values, and and they're always rejected as being some kind of backwoods redneck. That's what they are considered to be. And that's how the media portrays anybody who stands for morality. And it's the same way within, within the churches. If you stand up for everything that the Bible teaches us to do, and we do that, we're looked at like there's something wrong with us mentally. And there will come a time, there will come a time, if the Lord doesn't come very soon, that we will actually be considered mentally ill. I made that statement earlier. They're, you know, they're trying to do that now with anybody who's a gun owner. 
they're working that angle, saying that there's something mentally ill with that person because they want to own a firearm. You know, and, and, and that's, there may be some truth to it. I, I don't know, maybe some. No. <laughs> you know, you've got to be a little crazy to go out there and just pull the trigger just to see the ground you're up, you know, blah, 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 blah. That's what I do. Just go out there and, or shoot at a bottle that's full of water and watch it explode. You know, there's got to be the... <clears throat> what are you saying, brother? I, I'm saying that sometimes, you know, now I, that's a f- far-reaching. But what I just said to you is how some people come into this church and they see us explode. You see what I'm saying? They see us run the aisles. They see us worship God. They see us dance. They see us do what we do. And to them... Why would anybody want to do that? I can worship God by just sitting here, closing my eyes, and snoring for 15 minutes. Or possibly if things really get, I'll do this. You know? You know, and that's to them. They cannot understand how a person can be so committed to God that we believe everything that David did. And we're going to worship like David worshiped. We're going to dance like David danced. We're going to shout like David shouted. We're going to do everything the Bible tells us and the psalmist tells us to do. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to some people because, you see, some people are so sold on their idea. You know, I'm not sold on an idea. I'm sold on this. And you see, I don't really have any ideas on my own. I just go by what this says. And you see, a lot of people that are humanistically inclined, they have to apply their ideas and their motives. And if the Bible doesn't agree with them, then they can't agree with the Bible. And that's what you get when you see a lot of things that's going on out there. So, you know, people can't stand that. You know, conviction, uh, you know, seldom stands on, on center stage before a a cheering crowd, but on this day, in this vineyard, Naboth stood by his convictions. You know, you understand what I'm saying? A lot of times people won't cheer for somebody who has convictions. They want somebody who, who says this is okay and this is okay and everything that you want to do is okay. Then they'll cheer you. And people get into that kind of thing. They love being cheered. They love being the, the person who everybody loves. But a person who gets up there and says this is wrong, that's wrong, and we shouldn't do this, they're not going to cheer for that person. Not at all. So Naboth entered his home with confidence. He had done what was right. But Ahab went home heavy and displeased, according to 1 Kings 21.4. He laid down on his bed, would eat no bread. He went on a fast, but it wasn't the kind of fast that you go on. He just was mad. Ahab was wicked, and Ahab was weak. You know, we may think... The ungodly are strong and resolute, but often they're no more than cowards and backyard bullies. That's exactly the truth. That's what a lot of the ungodly are. Public view, Ahab had conquered the Syrians and pushed them back to Damascus. But in private, the king acted like a spoiled child. It took someone more wicked and stronger than himself to seize the moment, and that's what Jezebel did. And she says this, Does thou now govern the kingdom... Uh, governor of the kingdom of Israel, arise and eat bread and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Jezebel could have had Naboth murdered in his bed or while working in his vineyard, but she chose a more devious and diabolical way. She used the law of the Israelites against one of their own. 
wrote letters in the name of Ahab, sealed them with his seal, and she demanded that the nobles of Jezreel proclaim a fast, emphasizing the seriousness of the situation. And she set Naboth in a place of judgment among the people. The elders and the nobles were to, to bring in two scoundrels for the purpose of accusing Naboth of cursing God and the king. Jezebel's plan succeeded, and the nobles readily complied. The two witnesses publicly accused Naboth of crimes he had not committed, and everything looked to be a matter of justice when the upright man was stoned to death outside the city. Ahab never considered the heinousness of his crime. He never received what he wanted, and he was satisfied, or he had received rather what he wanted. He was satisfied. Jezebel told him to take possession of the vineyard. This is, I, I, you know, there is... There is one place, actually two places in Scripture. Elijah's mentioned a lot, but nobody says, and Elijah the Tishbite came from the city of Nomarum, and he was this and this. You never hear any history of, Je- of Elijah. You only see him when he comes out of the bushes and tells Ahab that there's no rain going to fall. That's the first time you see him. And now you see him again here. And guess where he's at? Jezebel says, go take possession of your vineyard. Well, oh, you know, Ahab's all happy. He's going to run to his vineyard and start clearing everything out and planting him some herbs. He walks to the gate, and here comes Elijah. I mean, just standing there, coming out of the bushes again. There is just sometimes, folks, you know, you, you do things that are wrong, and it seems like there's some preacher who knows. Somebody has to tell him. You ever seen it? I've had it so many times. People come and say, oh, somebody told you what I did. And I did no one told me anything. I didn't even know who the person was. You know, and, and that happens because God does know. So out of the bushes comes Elijah. And first thing that, that uh, comes out of Ahab's mouth is uh, he says, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? Ahab asked him. And Elijah countered him. He said, I have found thee because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Hast thou killed and also taken possession in the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth? Shall dogs lick thy blood even thine? 1 Kings 21, 19. Further, the Lord's, <clears throat> Lord's judgment extended to every male descendant of Ahab and to Jezebel, who would be eaten by dogs at the wall of Jezreel. So the preacher came out, the prophet came out, and he told him, this is what's going to happen to you. If you don't, you know, for what you did. You don't get away with stuff. Absolutely. People think they get away with it all the time, but they're miserable. You take a man who's become rich and done it by dubious means, that man is never truly happy. And, and so you see, it never, ever pays to go the wrong direction here. The world system, it, it runs counter to all that is right and all that is godly. It's completely counter to it and decent. It is a way of thinking and acting that originates with the devil himself. And every age since the day of Pentecost, he has tempted Christians. Every age. And he'll not stop with us. He's going to continue to tempt. He's going to continue to try to put obstacles in our way. He's going to try to do everything he can to cause you just to sit and say, I'm afraid to do anything because the devil will attack me. That's when you know you need to go at it twice as hard. 
And I'm going to live for God twice as hard because obviously I've stirred something up and something great is about to occur. And if I, as a child of God, can push through and see God do mighty works in this church, then God help us to not sit back and say no because the devil is standing against us. We're going to say yes, we're going to go ahead. I'm crossing over. I'm getting into my promises. I'm accepting what God wants me to do. And I'm going to do it with everything that is in my heart, everything that is in my soul. I'll live in a hand clap. Give him a good Bible says, love not the world, neither the things are in the world. But if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2.15. Paul wrote, be not conformed to this world, Romans 12.2. The world calls to us in a thousand subtle ways. It calls to teenagers, girls, boys alike, whatever it may be. When they go to school, they don't want to be a misfit, so they want to dress a certain way or attend a function they shouldn't attend. I don't want to be considered a misfit. It's the same way with a, with a woman in the church. And, and she has a, a, her idea or what she feels the world's idea of being attractive is, so she wants to use all the makeup and all the jewelry and everything the world does. That's another temptation that they have. Man, that's not needed. God beautifies the meek with salvation. He beautifies the, the ladies in the church with the way they... The most beautiful women in the world are in a Pentecostal church. That's just the simple fact. The most beautiful women in the world. Why? Because they've not allowed the immodesty. They've not allowed the worldly look to, to get a hold of them. They, they're, they're beautified by the glow and the radiance of the Holy Ghost. That is the beauty. That is the beauty of a child of God. So they, this, this happens, you know, the same way with men. You know, who's, you, you see a husband who's thrown into a situation with a flirtatious female co-worker or, or whose boss expects him to be dishonest in the company's uh, finances or customer's finances, rather. You know, a man can gamble online with a click of a, uh, of a mouse. A woman can stop at the grocery store and buy bread, eggs, milk, and get a bottle of liquor in her cart. Sometimes the world reasons one social drink in, at, at the party won't hurt. At work or school, you can dress like the world, and the, and, and the preacher won't know the difference. Watching a little pornography is, is nobody's business but your own. This is what you think. This is the temptation that comes at you. You don't have to disclose every detail on your income tax return. I tell you what, that is the one temptation that hits me the worst. I'm trying to be honest so I can get victory over this. Women don't do it. All that other drinking don't do it. I can sit around somebody drinking and the smell of alcohol makes me sick. And a cigarette, sir, won't do it. I can be around somebody who smoked two weeks ago and know you smoked. You can eat all the mint you want. It don't make a lick of difference. Oh, I just around somebody that was smoking in the car. Yeah, you were. You got a breath like a sewer? Come on. Oh, this is Memorial Day. You're going to remember this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've got a guy that takes care. He looks at books at the church, and, and he takes care of, of Mars personally. I told my wife, I said, man, I said, this guy, I said, how come all the other preachers get away with all this and do all that? And I said, we can't get away with nothing. This guy keeps us, and I, he's a great guy, the most conservative. In fact, somebody that recommended him said he was the most conservative guy you'll ever meet, and he is. You want to be sure you don't ever get audited, go to this guy. You want to be broke the rest of your life, go to this guy. 
you know. You know, there's a popular saying that every man has his price. There's a popular saying. Esau smelled the, the, the pottage and he sold his birthright for one morsel of meat in Hebrews 12:16. Judas sold his savior for 30 pieces of silver. The common price for the meanest slave. For others, the price may be popularity or fame or wealth or prestige. Some sell their morals for a single night of pleasure or for a little cash in hand. So what is our price? Will we put a value on our ethics and our principles? Will we bow to the gods of sensual pleasure and live a life of regret? Tears of genuine repentance can touch God and obtain forgiveness, but some things can never be undone. I want you to remember this. Tears cannot undo the damage of false gossip about a pastor whose authority has been undermined or his reputation ruined. Tears cannot cancel the unanticipated pregnancy after a couple has given in to temptation and conceived a child out of wedlock. All the tears in the world will not erase the physical and the sexual abuse a child suffers because a parent or another individual loses control. You think about what I'm saying. Yeah, God does forgive us. But too many people think that all I have to do is get God's forgiveness and everybody's going to treat me the same. You can cry and you can come down this altar and cry and I'm not telling you that people won't forgive you, but it won't be done easily. Don't you ever think that it should be, you know, I did this yesterday and I come down and cried today, you should forgive me. That's not going to work. You've got to build trust again. You've got to build trust. And, the, and that is something that has to be built. You don't do that immediately. And there's nothing... I've watched, I've seen people who have failed, and you see the people who are real. People try to make it right in every way. And they don't push themselves out there and try to be the head dog anymore. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. Build trust again. Build trust. I'm not telling you it's impossible to fail. Everybody can fail. And God help us to, that God does forgive us and we can make it to heaven. But it's just going to take a while for people to have the kind of trust they need again. And you're gonna give, you need to give people time. You need to give people time. Tears, again, this doesn't do that. The value of a human soul is too profound for any to comprehend. That the, the thought that a person will spend eternity as an immortal being, either in a lost condition or a saved condition, it, it, it staggers you it, to, to understand, to even think about that. No tragedy in this life can compare to the loss of a soul. With the future suffering of the cross weighing heavily upon his mind, Jesus asked this question to his disciples. He said this. It was a far-reaching question. He said, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? God places tremendous value upon a soul. He paid the highest price, invested his dearest possession, and offered the greatest sacrifice to redeem us from our sins. 1 Peter 1.18 says, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. God sees a soul as being more valuable than trillions of American dollars or European euros. and In fact, more, more valuable than the entire world and all its financial systems. Some may ask, why did God change his mind about sin? I've, seen, I, I, I've heard people in, in, in their own wonder, I guess, make that statement. Has God changed his mind, or say it like this, has God changed his mind about sin? Thank the Lord has softened his opinion about sin because preacher seldom mentions it, much less addresses individual sins. 
And that's the truth. The things that are wrong, and I'm not going to go in and enumerate them now. I've enumerated them plenty of times, and I will continue to do so. But the things that were wrong 50 years ago are still wrong today. That does not change. God does not change his mind. He does not. This word is forever settled in heaven. It's what's in that that really matters. Our society condones what is once, once was condemned. And folks, let me, let's just be real blatantly honest, honest here. There are certain ways of people acting, certain filthiness of the flesh that we would not condone in any way, but we watch movies that have it on it and think it's great. Come on. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you, and I can't. I, I made this statement before. I, it's okay to have computers and not televisions. I cannot say one is wrong because, because of the other one. I can't. I used to be completely against television, and a UPC still is. And I, I, I don't have one. But I cannot stand up here and say it's wrong for you to have a TV if you've got a computer that's the same thing or worse. You know, I just can't do that. So, But let me say this. You are wrong in what you let come in. You are wrong in what you let come in. And keep this in mind. Yes, maybe, maybe you can tolerate it. Maybe it won't bother you. But you don't know. You say, well, I'll put the kids to bed. But what are they hearing? So, you know, we have to be careful of the steady stream of stuff that comes in. And, boy, that comes in, you know, kids have their own way of doing things. And you may think that you're, you're watching them and you've got them blocked out. These kids, don't, there's, there's five, six-year-olds that know more about a computer than I do. You know, at one time, church-going people abhorred adultery and homosexuality. But these acts have become so commonplace the religious world has softened its stand against them, at least tends to, and at least tends to look the other way. And it's still wrong, folks. It doesn't matter. It's still wrong. Alexander Pope, foremost English poet of the early 18th century, wrote about becoming inured to things in the world system. And he said this, Vice is a monster of frightful mien, as to be hated, but to be seen. Yet seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then we embrace. You must have courage to withstand that which is evil. Hold firmly to that which is right. We must not compromise our message on the new birth, on the oneness of God, or on our standards of holiness. These truths are essential. They are too precious to be bartered away, bartered away for the sake of finding middle ground with a religious world that is constantly changing. We're doing a great work, and we cannot come down to the level of others who preach and teach a weaker message. We've got to keep the message strong. We have to. I first took uh, the church. I had a man come to me, a minister, a long, long time ago. And uh, he was actually doing some work here. He did some work on the sides, um, construction work. And I had just taken the church and he came to me. And he, I, I'll never forget this. And I understood it and I didn't, certainly didn't hold against him. But he said, he said, be careful, he said, and don't preach too hard or you'll run people off. And I understood uh, where he was coming from in a, in a sense. But I, and I didn't, you know, he was older than I was. I didn't come against him in any way. But I thought a lot about it over the years. 
And I thought, you know, I've never changed really a bit. And it's never run anybody off. They really love God. You see, if you love God, you're going to do everything you can to be pleasing to Him. Stand with me. I just want to, a couple of things while you're here. Of course, there's no service tonight. Uh, There will be. There will be. We'll have service, of course, Wednesday. Uh, Sunday, we're going to have, and and we're not having, you know, if we had our new building up out there, we would have dinner and all that, but we're not. So we're just saying, Sister Sister Mona Davis is going to be speaking Sunday morning, and her brother uh, is going to be from Pennsylvania, Pastors, Pennsylvania, and he's going to be speaking here Sunday night, just for our 50th, that's our 50th year, and uh, probably just talking about some things. His uh, brother, Balt, uh, Mona's dad pastored here for 23 years. And uh, I pastor here for 27, so it's you know, it's our 50th year, and and he established the church. And actually, I'm looking over and I'm trying to think who was Sister uh, uh, Balt was here to beginning. Who else am I? I know I, I know Mona was Gentry's were here. Uh, wasn't that right? Okay. And uh, Sharon, you were here. Am I missing somebody? Not a lot of us left. Not them left. I came in later. <laughs> Not a lot of them left. But we're going to, you know, it's just, it's just going to be a way of honoring the past. And uh, it's, done a, it's been a great thing here. God knows that I always have hoped this church has been a light for this community. That's the important thing. We've been a light. been a place of refuge, a city of refuge. And this is what it should be. Raise your hands with me right now. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings and all that you have done. Pray, God, here today that you keep your hand upon each and every one. Whatever, Lord, that they're doing this day and tomorrow, God, that you would keep them safe, protected. I ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you.